Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant afternoon there, everybody out there in Radio Land. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the host of the Water Zone. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. We have an awesome show, and uh, I want to say hi to Mr. Davies. And so again, to remind everybody that we're broadcasting remote, and literally Chris and I are remote from each other. Um, we haven't been at the studio for quite a while, only because of the COVID situation. And and uh, you know, I don't want to put my lips on a, on a windscreen from a microphone and catch COVID. So we, we do these things remote. I'm in Arizona at the moment, and Mr. Davies is in California. So, Chris, welcome to the show again. Okay, thank you very much, sir. As you know, I've been, been away for a while and trying to catch up here at uh, at work. So I've been busy. If I didn't uh, write you all this week, Rob, don't take it too hard, man. <laughs> I, I don't. Chris Chris was overseas, and um, he uh, he's back now, and uh, he's safe, didn't catch COVID, so I'm yeah. happy for that. And he's back to work now, and uh, we're cranking away. But Chris, do you know what? Since you've been gone for a while, you may not have kept kept uh, aware of dates and times and everything. You you know what this month is? This month is. Yeah, I certainly do. This month is Smart Irrigation Month, buddy. That's a trick. That was a trick question. You tried to pull <laughs> one over on me. Absolutely. You know, the Irrigation Association is excited to kick off another Smart Irrigation Month with this July. And this is this year it's sponsored by HydroPoint. And they shine a spotlight on the benefits of efficient irrigation and the wise and efficient use of water. And throughout the month of July, be sure to keep an eye on the, the Irrigation Association's social media channels and their website for helpful resources and tips on how you can get involved. And so to do that, just go to Smart Irrigation Month org to get started again smart irrigation month.org to get started and it's a good deal we've been participating in it ever since ever since they uh, they came up with that word and month and um, you know you know what a lot of companies don't know and a lot of water agencies does you know uh, water smart the term water smart Toro owns that <laughs> and then all these water districts and everybody else has been using the thing we're not suing anybody for it we think it's great that they picked up on it and now everybody calls it uh, Water Smart or Smart Water, so we're excited about that. But speaking of that, we have a great uh, guest coming on first, and uh, he happens to work for the Irrigation Association, and his name is Kyle Brown. He's the editor-in-chief of their Irrigation and Lighting magazine, as well as their Irrigation Today magazine. So Kyle, all the way from the East Coast in Virginia, welcome to the Water Zone. Thanks for having me, Rob. I really appreciate being here. We, uh, you know, we were, Toro was a founding member of the Irrigation Association, so we love to promote uh, everything that you guys do, and uh, I'm going to start off with a question, and then Chris and I got a couple to ask you, but um, what is Smart Irrigation Month, and how does it support and promote the irrigation industry? Well, it sounds like you've already got a pretty good handle on how it works, although, uh, Chris, I was going to have to give you a hard time about it if you did not know. Uh, what month it's it was. Our, it's our listeners that we worry about. Chris and I are pretty much in tune. <laughs> <laughs> he did know it was July. Last thing I'll say, he did know it was July water. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, no, um, Smart Irrigation Month is an opportunity for uh, everyone within the, within the irrigation industry to kind of step up and brag about the interesting things that we're doing to promote smart and ir- efficient irrigation practices 
and to celebrate the professionals who are who are using and encouraging those practices. It's also a really good time to, if you are one of those contractors, either a landscape contractor or a you know a farmer, uh, it, it's a good time to show the people that you work with, uh, show your colleagues, and show people that you come across in your day-to-day social media or just out in your community what the things that you're doing to promote uh, smart irrigation or uh, efficient water use can do for them, like what the, what it means for a larger community. So there's yeah. a lot of options for uh, for what Smart Irrigation Month can mean for those contractors and, and uh, farmers. So how how can they be more uh, part of this? What, what what can they do to help promote this? Yeah, well, there's, there's, they've got a lot of options there too. Uh, one of the first ones that start every month, we like to kick off uh, the kind of unofficial kickoff for the month is the Technology Tuesday. That's the first Tuesday of the month. That is an opportunity for everyone who has a, has a social media account or any other way of posting things online. Uh, we encourage people to take a photo of themselves, a selfie, if you will, uh, of them wearing blue, and then post that to social media and hashtag that Smart Irrigation Month. And so that on that first Tuesday of the month, you see as many people as you can just uh, joining that movement of uh yeah, encouraging smart irrigation and showing how are, how people are able to uh, promote smart water use. So that's one of the ways that we can do that. Uh, unfortunately, that that's already passed for the month, but it was it was great to see on social media. <laughs> yeah. So we've got lots of you know, yeah, we had lots of uh, you know uh, engagement there. And then uh, one of the other uh, one of the other ways that you can get involved here is really easy. You can just go to smart uh, smartirrigationmonth.org. You just go to the website and uh, check out what we have there. We have a lot of resources that are able to be downloaded, uh, uh, resources such as uh, things you can use for your social media, things that you that make it easy for you to post up images or details about what smart irrigation can do and efficient water use can mean for your community, uh, just as a way to say, hey, this is what we do. This is this is why this is important to our to our uh, to our constituents, to the people that we work with. And then also uh, things that are easy to, to use in, if you happen to be doing Zoom calls, we have Zoom backgrounds or things like that that are just easy to kind of plug and play into your day-to-day work. So uh, lots of opportunities there. And then, of course, the I can't go without saying this because this is the thing that I'm tied to specifically with the magazines, uh, both for Irrigation Today and Irrigation and Lighting. One of the things that we've been trying to do this month uh, really making a point to do is connecting with people uh, who are encouraging those practices and uh, talking about what it is that makes smart irrigation important to them and who are the champions. We're trying to recognize the champions of of smart irrigation in their individual companies. So we've been posting Q&As every, every week within both of the magazine websites. And if you go to the website and you check out or you check out Smart Irrigation, you will find a link to a questionnaire where you can also tell me all about why you are a Smart Irrigation champion, and it can give us a chance to talk about that. And maybe we'll be able to use that on the website as well. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to turn the mic over to Mr. Davey for a couple of questions I know he has for you. Chris? Yeah, no problem, Rob. Thanks very much. And uh, Kyle, man, I'm so sorry I took away your opportunity to give me a hard time and razz me about that a little bit. <laughs> but for, the, for the most part, I, I have been awake since I got back from uh, across the pond and uh, and so yeah. pr- uh, pretty much aware of stuff that's going on. So um, this next question is kind of getting into uh, the meat of... Um, an article that's on both of the IA magazines, web editions as well. 
kind of dealing if we can and go right into the you know the meat of the of the supply chain shortages and stuff and i'm going to start yeah. with a question that references the ag side of the business because we know farmers right now just dealing with all kinds of factors impacting um their businesses shortages and stuff like that from su- supply chain um issues kind of if you will give us kind of like the 30,000 view of how the current <laughs> supply chain and logistics issues are affecting the ag side of the business the farmers right I was really excited when you you mentioned this uh, when we were talking off off the air uh, just in lead up to this to say you know this is it's something that's really important for farmers and especially on the agriculture side it doesn't get a lot of notice uh, in the wider in the wider market as much as a lot of landscape sometimes does but uh, farmers are definitely dealing with supply chain shortages right now uh, and I, again uh, just from the start I want to say these are you know these aren't specifically my opinions. These are things that I've collected from people that I talk to in the field because, you know, I trust their expertise more than my own. But just to say, they have definitely been seeing a lot of shortages, especially in terms of whatever, for whatever clause it is, wherever the, wherever the hookup is along the line, or holdup is along the line, there have been uh, distinct shortages in equipment and uh, different parts that have been typically fairly available a lot of the lead times have definitely uh, stretched. You've definitely seen a lot of that time uh, go farther than it has before. I heard from several of my sources that it's been as many as 10 times as long in waiting for parts or equipment to show up. And it's, it, of course, I want to, you know, just to say it's not everywhere, but the places where it's at, it's significant. So it's definitely, you know, there are farmers out there who are, doing all the right things. You know, they're doing they're doing the day-to-day work. They're out there managing their water best they can. They're out there managing their inputs. And just because of the way that the market has, or the, the manufacturing, uh, I'm sorry, the supply chain has contracted, uh, it's been difficult for them to get, uh, you know, reach their goals. So it's been frustrating for sure. I think it's got a much broad, broader reach. I mean, if anybody, unless somebody's been living in a cave the last uh, couple of years, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. you know, everybody sees it. We see it in our personal lives. We see it in our jobs. Certainly, as a manufacturer, uh, our uh, Rob and I's employee uh, in Toro, um, we see yeah. it there, right? I mean, we are we're yeah. tackling issues on the supply side, material issues, and things like that. So, cer- certainly not uncommon, is it, Rob? No, you're absolutely right, and you know it even it even moves over to the uh, uh, residential landscape contractors as well. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'm sure it's similar to that. Correct? Yeah, for sure. There's actually uh, before we get over to the landscape side, I want to mention that you you even uh, mentioned something else that's related there too. It's not just in the parts that you're feeling that stretch, right? That 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 uh, need for uh, more people to show up or even more more supply. Uh, I've been hearing about service times uh, have also been just really, really strained lately too. Uh, it's yeah, uh, it's partially because of the parts, right? Because if you do have to do service, it's hey, it's going to be a couple weeks before I can get this part. But then also the people who are doing that service work are really strained right now because there's so much work going on. That even that side of it is is uh, the supply chain uh, is. The supply chain of labor in that case is uh, is definitely strained too. So it goes both well, ways. You got the money factor too, the economic value, the price of diesel. 
uh, getting sure. fertilizer, um, you know, even wages. You know, people people are even saying they want to work for more money and, and such right. and such. I, I don't see it slowing down. I mean, they just had a report today on, on a new inflation number, which is really scary. Um, you know, they're worried about uh, food shortages, uh, everything. I, I, he- I heard a really sick thing uh, on, on, on television the other day on cable. Somebody was saying that uh, we shouldn't stop abortions because it helps reduce the population, and therefore you, they, they, oh, wow. they won't have a stress on, on, on getting formula. Can you believe somebody said that? Not. That is a lot, yeah. And that was somebody in government who said that, and I was just shocked. I was just shocked to hell that somebody would even even approach something like that, saying that. Uh, has nothing well, I, it should have nothing to do with the conversation, but that's what they threw in. <laughs> right. I think I think one of the things that we should be focusing on specifically is that these are people who are, you know, yeah, they are dealing with a lot of impacts to their business. They're really uh, they're really putting in that effort, and it's frustrating. It has to be really frustrating to really do all that work and say I'm still coming up short because the you know the center pivot that I was going for. Or you know, I had a hey, I had something go down, and I can't get I can't get the parts I need right now. And again, it's not everywhere, but where the where they are feeling those uh, pinches, it's, it, it definitely hurts. Chris, I impeded on some of your question time, so go ahead. No, no yeah. I was just I was actually going <laughs> to I was actually going to follow that up and take you know, kind of switch over from ag to the uh, to the residential commercial irrigation side. I mean, it's got to be uh, uh, known. Everybody realizes that it affects those guys. Um, as well, you know, the typical irrigation yeah. contractor who who is uh, uh, our is Toro's customer as well as uh, the other manufacturers. So, um, Kyle, I'm sure you've got some comments about how it's affecting landscape contractors because <laughs> I know they're seeing similar problems and uh, in supply chain uh, uh, supply chain stress. Yeah. Um, what have you seen there? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the a lot of the same stresses are there, uh, but the really the places that where you're really seeing the the strain is uh, it, it's it's really where anything that is a uh, any kind of a smart product right now can be a little bit more a little bit tougher to find. Anything that requires any kind of chip is going to be a little bit tougher to pull together at this point. Uh, it's not as strained as the egg side from what I've heard, but. But from the sources that I've run into, and I have to give some, uh, of course, I have to give some credit to uh, one of my colleagues, uh, McKenna Corson, who has been helping write and uh, collect uh, sources for all of these stories, too. Uh, but from what we've been hearing, you know, it's not just the equipment, right? You're missing out on equipment and things are taking longer. But for the landscape side, it's it, there's even additional level of stress because, well, you know, a farmer is working on their, you know, they're doing the business, they're doing the job on their own, right? They're not working with a client in mind in particular, right? Whereas a landscape contractor has uh, a client that they have to answer to every single day, right? Why is this job not getting done? Why are things taking so long? What's going on? And so there's that, that there's an additional pull of where you have to be able to talk to the client, the, the, the customer, whether they are commercial or whether they are residential, it, it adds another layer of, of stress for them. So even you know, so even a, a small delay for the landscape side can feel uh, pretty enormous. <laughs> Is there much chatter coming back to you at the IA from the from the contractor side, the residential and contractor side of the of, of the business, Kyle? I know I know certainly we uh, we hear it from from the Toro side. 
but it's mostly focused on um, on uh, an issue I don't think we've touched on yet. You know, we're talking about supply side uh, supply side con- constraints, and that being uh, personnel, uh-huh. people, contractors are yeah. telling us they just can't find people. Yeah. Well, there are. We definitely have heard those stories too. And again, you know, I want to. I want to keep. Uh, I want to really focus on the supply chain of equipment here, but I, I can point you to our uh, our Green Industry Outlook uh, report that we do every year. In fact, actually, you'll see it twice this year. We had one in uh, we had one in our January or our, our uh, winter issue, and then we'll be we're trying to move it into the uh, the upcoming winter issue for this year, uh, so that it's uh, properly time for people who are doing their business uh, business planning, but. You know, we always ask about labor in that, and that is one of the questions for the last three years running. I can say pretty distinctly that uh, at least two thirds of the people that are in our are in our readership uh, feel as though they can't find enough people locally to to field with the amount of work that they're dealing with. And that's especially true from the last year or so of you know the booming industry that we've seen, or the boomer bust rather. But that's uh, that's definitely been true. Uh, I will say that there have been corollaries along the, the the things that I've been looking at, the data points that I've been looking at in those, to say that um, well, you know, I know we talked about it briefly earlier. The companies that tend to pay a little better tend to not feel as strongly that they can't find the number of people that they need. But uh, it's not that's not hard and fast rule. <laughs> It's just something that we've seen within the the data that we're collecting there. But yeah, right. uh, labor def- continues to be a problem as well for for yeah. everyone in this industry. Agree, agree, Kyle. So, yeah. hey, Rob, let's get another question. Can uh, I'd like, in the interest of time here, Rob, move over to to talking about some of the um, state and local water agencies and uh, regulations that are coming into effect. Rob, do you mind if I do that? No, I was just going to suggest that. Uh, <laughs> It's it's been a big issue for us, Kyle, as uh, uh, as you know, and I know that uh, that it is for you as uh, as well. Um, we've certainly been able, as Toro, we've been certainly been able to keep up with the uh, changes in uh, ordinance uh, in our mm-hmm. state, uh, California, and several other states under the EPA Water Sense program and and certification of our products for that. But um, I'm kind of interested, and I know a number of our listeners are probably interested in learning on uh, about what the irrigation is doing education-wise in, in your uh, outreach and all that sort of stuff, right, to kind of accommodate education, yeah. um, you know, how are you changing the way that the IA operates under the new auspices of these uh, ordinances and restrictions? Yeah, it's a great question. And I I want to start by saying, of course, the IA is, you know, I, I continue to talk about things like certification and the education opportunities that are there. Uh, those are constantly being looked at, and we're trying. We're always trying to find ways to uh, to make those uh, courses useful and uh, something that, uh, whether you're working in agriculture or on landscape, you are able to apply those things in a way that will allow you to work effectively, regardless of these kinds of restrictions. So that's one thing. That that's kind of a, a starting point, I guess. Uh, from the other side of it, you know, we're is we are. Of course, trying to be as connected as we can to the people who, who need help with these things. And uh, you'll notice, uh, for instance, with the California webinar that happened, or the, the California water restrictions that came down uh, a while back, 
we uh, the IA worked with a couple other organizations to put together a webinar, and we established uh, we did actually some original reporting around that too, to try to help people understand, oh, try to collect as much information as possible because one of the things that can make these kinds of restrictions difficult to deal with is just ambig- ambiguity, honestly. Uh, you have a lot of people who are trying to figure things out very quickly. What are the, what are the exceptions, for instance? What, 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 you know, what can we do? What can't we do? And uh, you know, we're, we're always trying to help in those situations to, at least for the magazine, I can speak to say that we're trying to collect a lot of that information uh, where we can, too. Um, that said, uh, you know, those webinars are on our website. They are uh, they're easy to get to, and they include a lot of people who are experts in the industry and know a heck of a lot more than I do. And they'll be <laughs> they can they speak a lot more intelligently on it than I can. So I would recommend, uh, you know, of course, checking out our website. Please go to irrigationandlighting.org. I, I might say, uh, or to ir- irrigationtoday.org and check those out. Those are very useful resources. So that's a, that's a place to start, at least from the IA's perspective. Well, if all the things that uh, going through laws and stuff and and, and learning uh, training professionals and stuff, what what does the IA do to educate and train? The irrigation professionals, because they're a diverse group with many different industry needs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, I I don't mean to come back to it, but the way that we are, uh, the way that the IA is structured, you know, yeah, that certification and the education uh, points are going to be right up at the top of the list. Those are things that, regardless of where you are in the industry, whether you are, uh, again, ag or landscape, or whether you work with a manufacturer, whether whether you're a contractor, there are resources that you can start with. And that can be helpful to uh, give you, yeah, give you the tools that you need to handle these types of situations, to be a person who can, who can you know, maybe volunteer or be a part of uh, a, a group that's talking in a, within a, a local legislative group to say, hey, you know, if we are going to go through with these uh, uh, with these uh, restrictions, then maybe this is a way that we can look at it. Maybe we can think about these. Maybe we can think about you know, smart irrigation uh, or smart or effective water use first before just switching to a full uh, restriction. So, those are the yeah. places that I would say to start. Good. Well, I know we talked about at the beginning that uh, the irrigation show and education week is coming up. So, what are some <laughs> of the opportunities? No, that's an important thing. What is what is the opportunity does it offer for irrigation professionals or anybody actually? Oh, Rob, there's there's so much. I have. I want to tell you, uh, my notes here are well, you got much more than I thought. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I'll try to run through it fast. Uh, the important things okay. to say here are the that the uh, you know the irrigation show and education week, of course, runs December fifth uh, uh, through the ninth. The trade show itself is is the seventh and eighth. Um, there are a lot of opportunities there this month. Uh, and again, now that we're back in, in person at Las Vegas, you've got a lot of things that could be going on. A lot of, uh, you know, it's never going to be a dull moment there for sure. Right. Um, we have, a uh, we have, uh, a lot of networking events that are going on with that. A lot of, uh, several new ones as well. Uh, we've got a couple, uh, the, uh, we've got a few different events that are happening there as far as helping you develop your networks and then also helping you uh, get, in connect, uh, get connected with uh, people who will be able to yeah, teach you, uh, you know, help you uh, learn what you need to know to be effective in, in, your, in your part of the, uh, of the market. 
And I need to be able to say, of course, that registration is open currently. I'm sorry, registration opens this month. So watch the website for how to register. Housing is already open. So uh, check that out. Yeah, you can already start planning. I know that we are already planning. We've got quite a lot on our plates (laughs) leading into it. Uh, so it will be, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I know that I'm looking forward to it, uh, just to reconnect with a lot of people that I've run into in the industry. And also, yeah, uh, like I've said before, uh, getting connected with a lot of the people who have helped me, uh, see these larger trends that are happening. Uh, this is, this is where I find out, uh, you know, what I need to know in order to be connected to, uh, well, for the magazine, like this is, this is what helps me learn what, uh, professionals are really thinking and, and talking about. Okay. Uh, how do people get a hold of the IA information? Where can they go? Of, co- <laughs> of course, you can go to irrigation.org. Yeah. Uh, the yes, and uh, for Smart Irrigation Month, uh, SmartIrrigationMonth.org. Uh, please check those out. We have a lot of tools there that you can use, a lot of resources that you can just pick up and, and run with. Uh, and then also, please. Uh, please feel free to check out both irrigationandlighting.org and irrigationtoday.org. I'm very proud of a lot of the original reporting that we've been doing lately. Again, I have to give a, give a shout out to McKenna, who's done an excellent job with those. Um, we've done some really good work that you literally will not see on any other website within this within our industry. Uh, so I, I, I'm very excited about that, and I would love to see, have, make, have more people take a look at them. You well, I guess that'd be uh, you really do. I love the I love the sound off editorial in the uh, uh, in the magazine as well. Yep, mm. and I guess I guess we'll have to get McKenna on the show as well. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, maybe you'll see her at the show. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure yeah, something out there. We will. We will. Well, hey, Kyle, thanks very much for joining us. We're going to go to our commercial break. We appreciate you coming on. Anytime you guys want to come on, just pick up the phone or send me an email, and you got it, man. I am so pleased to have been here. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Rob. And it's always good to talk, Chris. Thank you. You have a great week. All right, we're going to be back in just a few minutes. We're taking a commercial break, and we'll be back with a special uh, uh, guest uh, from Jackson, Mississippi. It's a pretty interesting story I heard and really touched my heart, and I think you guys all need to hear that. So stick around. We'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it. Instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers. And you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? 
Oh, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that, introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the technical service hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. K.C. A. A. I guess I'm traveling music one because we're going to Jackson, Mississippi to hear about what's happening with their water in the capital city of uh, Mississippi. And it's it's very touching story to me. And and, uh, I've always said everybody deserves in this country to have clean drinking water. So. Stick around and listen to this. It's a pretty good. Uh, our friend uh, Tremaine Lee is going to head up the uh, conversation. So, Tremaine, take it away. Imagine for a moment life with no water, none to drink or bathe in or to flush with, none to do dishes or laundry in, none to wipe the smudge from your child's face or to wash down food or medication. Of all we take for granted, Every single day in America, access to fresh water probably tops the list. By now, we've all heard the heartbreaking story of the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. But all across the country, from cities to towns deep in rural America, life without fresh, drinkable water is a daily reality. One of the regions that struggles with clean water is the Black Belt, a swath of geography in the American South that stretches from East Texas into the heart of Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi, home to some of the richest land in the U.S., but also home to some of our country's poorest, most resource-starved people. The water issue usually flies under the radar until there's a catastrophe. Imagine waking up thinking it's raining outside. I could probably capture some water to flush my toilets. Thousands of Jackson residents have little to no water pressure tonight. As of right now, the mayor says he cannot give a definitive day or time when the water will be back on. Welcome to Jackson, Mississippi. Over the course of three weeks, tens of thousands of people in Jackson, Mississippi, the state's capital, went without water. My son saw saw us gathering this water. And he just kind of stood by and was watching. And he said, Mama, what's wrong? A rare winter storm and then a freeze brought the city's ancient pipe system to its breaking point. 
most of the people who had no water are black. I do think that if we're being honest, it's a matter of race. Today, the reality of life without water in Jackson and the troubling connection between neglected infrastructure and race that's even older than those pipes. I remember these ice storms. My grandma, my mom, that's what we had to do. You just prepare the tubs. Prepare the tubs. Cassandra Welchin learned that one early on, whenever winter storms rolled through Mississippi. Fill up buckets, fill up your tubs, fill up your sinks. Cassandra was born and raised in Jackson, a city that's more than 80% black. She still lives there today with her husband and three children. They call it the chocolate city, right? Mm. It's also the largest city, you know, in a state. It is, you know, full of soul. Um, you come to Jackson, Mississippi, you're going to be sitting on somebody's front porch drinking some sweet tea, um, having a barbecue, Miss Mary on the front porch saying, hey, mm. baby. You know, it's such a, a friendly community, right? Everybody knows everybody and in your business. Mm-hmm. But it's so vibrant. Vibrant, but also largely poor, mostly segregated, and steeped in some ugly history. It is a place where slaves built our city halls, right, and our state buildings. It was just nine months ago that the Mississippi state flag with the Confederate battle emblem came down at the Capitol. After weeks of mounting pressure, the Mississippi House has passed a bill to change the state flag, the last in the country to still include the Confederate battle emblem. Cassandra and her family live in West Jackson, a section of the city that's more black and more impoverished than the other side of town. It's also further from the city's water treatment plant. About a month ago, Cassandra was watching Winter Storm Ori inch closer to Jackson, the same storm that devastated Texas. All right, here we go with the threat tracker. We have gone ahead and expanded the entire area with a significant threat of wintry weather across our area. This really starts off today and continues through your Tuesday. Disruptive icing. This would be more so an ice storm situation. And so, kid you not, we were going to the grocery stores and, you know, shelves were being emptied. Um, And so people were preparing, you know, for what was to come. What I don't think people realized, though, was how long the effects would be. The storm hit Jackson on Valentine's Day, a Sunday. At first, the situation didn't seem so bad. And then... We started seeing and hearing that there were going to be ice accumulations. That was very worrisome to us. And so day three into the storm, there were people posting on Facebook that the water treatment center is not going to be able to uphold. Uh So people go ahead and fill your tubs up. And we were telling our children, go ahead and find candles, go ahead and get the blankets out just in case we lose power and we can't get on the roads to go anywhere. She knew what she had to do. As always, Prepare the tubs. We was filling the tub of water because if we lost water pressure, 
we needed water to flush toilets, mm-hmm. give it pressure so that it can flush. We were filling the sinks um, as well for the same purposes. And if we needed it for other things, we didn't know what we would you know, need it for. My husband went outside actually and was gathering some snow and, um, and was putting it in buckets just in case we needed it for something. Did you actually lose your water? Maybe that Wednesday, our water pressure started decreasing tremendously. By Thursday, Friday, it was just driplets happening. Mm. And the next morning, there was no water. So with tubs and sinks filled, and with a small supply of bottled water, the family hunkered down for what turned out to be an entire week. I remember my daughter saying, Mama, I'm thirsty, and we're only down to one case of water. And we hadn't even really been assessing all of that because we were trying to deal with all these other complicated things. Mm -hmm. I remember one day I was like, wait, nobody's had a bath here. We need to try to do a sponge bath. Like we said earlier, there's the obvious stuff you need water for, bathing, drinking, and of course, the family laundry. But that would have to wait. I remember I hadn't even thought about laundry. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, we got to go wash. Well, there's no water in the city to do that. Finally, after a long week, they got their water restored. Well, kind of. So now it comes back on, but it's dripping again. So it's almost like it's starting over. Mm. And so it's dripping, but it's brown. The water, I'm sorry, the water coming out is brown. This is not drinkable water. So the water's on, but it's like... Oh, yeah, no. And even when the water came back, there was a citywide order to boil it before using it. That boil order was in effect until Wednesday evening. All these tasks, the stress around this basic necessity of life, it takes a toll. My son saw, saw us gathering this water. And he just kind of stood by and was watching. And he said, Mama, what's wrong? Hmm. He began to get nervous. And he's our kid that's very sensitive, has high emotional intelligence. It made him nervous and made him scared and made him anxious. And he said, is this coronavirus happening all over Mm -hmm. again? That's what he said. And I said, son, tell me what you mean when you say that. He's nine years old. He's nine. And he's already seeing the trauma and everything we went through with COVID playing out. He's seeing it in your face and the behavior of the family and gathering water. He's like, yo, what is what is really good here? What's happening? Exactly. He didn't feel safe. Hmm. He's a kid who physical touch is his love language. And so he came up to us and he went to me and he just put his hands on me and was just kind of following me around. So he was seeing all of this. And so now he's getting very nervous. And so Mm. there's a traumatic experience for him. Mm. And we had to talk that out with him. Even as her own family struggled, Cassandra knew that many were going through worse. She's the executive director of Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable, a nonprofit that advocates for black women and girls throughout the state. Her organization worked with churches, community groups, and local businesses to help out with the basics, like distributing bottled water. Moms don't have water to make the formula for their babies. Uh, We've been providing hotel rooms for families when they didn't have power, when they didn't have water. 
just to have some normalcy in their lives for their families. Let's be clear. When Jackson is through this crisis, it's not the end of the problem because the city's water system is a century old and decrepit. There's often, you know, water main breaks um, that occur across the city or the water pressure is low. So we are constantly having to boil water within the city of Jackson. Some neighborhoods more than others. And this impacts also, you know, businesses, restaurants, childcare centers that are serving, you know, families. So, yes, this is constant that we have to do this. The boil orders mostly happen in the mostly black areas. To Cassandra, these repeated crises, the boil orders, the crumbling infrastructure, you can't disconnect any of this from race. If you do that, you are, you're not telling the truth. Let me say that. You're not telling the truth. Because the, the question is, why, why is it like this? And it's the disinvestment. Well, why is there a disinvestment in our black and brown communities and our black and brown cities? Because there is these attitudes and there's this intentionality mm. to keep people who are black and brown from experiencing the American dream. And so it's the racism that plays out that says that, you know, these people aren't worthy. So racism is very much a part of, very much a part of it, but I can't leave out gender either. Where poverty is situated is in those households led by single moms. Like that's where the poverty is. And that poverty rate is higher in Mississippi among women than anywhere else in the country. And so systemic racism is definitely a part of the system. And it goes back to Jim Crow. It reeks Jim Crow. And this is the consequences. And I don't even want to say unintended consequences. These are the intended consequences mm -hmm. of what happens when you don't invest in our communities of color and our Black communities. This is what happens I talk to the mayor of Jackson, who's black, and I ask him, what will it take to fix this age-old water problem? And whose job is it? I just want to ask, point blank and period, if Jackson was a majority white city, do you think the city would find itself in this position it's in? I, I want to say it as plainly as possible. No, that it would not be. Shokwe Antar Lamumba was elected mayor of Jackson in 2017. He was just 34, born in Detroit, but raised in Jackson from the age of five. His parents were prominent black revolutionary activists, and they felt Jackson needed their help. My father wanted to come to Jackson because he was here in the 70s and said that we had unfinished business. And so my parents, both being organizers, felt that they couldn't shield us from their work. They couldn't shield us from a movement. So they thought giving us a sense of community, a sense of, of the work in which we had to be a part of, was as important as giving us food, water, and shelter. Shokwe's father was elected mayor in 2013, but he died less than a year into his term. So the son followed in his father's footsteps. And the current mayor, Lumumba, has had to deal with many of the same issues as his father. Poverty, a dwindling population, and neglect of the city's rickety infrastructure. The February storm made it painfully clear who bears the brunt of that neglect. As systems came back on, it was the more affluent and often white areas that had 
either low water pressure to be restored earlier or to have their water restored sooner than than the other areas uh, because those communities are closest to the water treatment facility. They're closest to the river. There are justice and equity issues here, but it's not because you have a city that is choosing to flip the white switch versus the black switch of water. It's because when this city was laid out, there were all kinds of considerations that, you know, supported one community over another. It's the same old story. Infrastructure and inequality going hand in hand. Mayor Lumumba says it would take at least one and probably two billion dollars to truly repair the water system. The city of Jackson can't come close to paying that bill. City leaders say this will take a major investment from the state. And so there's a standoff between the city whose mayor and majority of citizens are black and the state whose top leaders are all white. Now, Jackson's water system didn't turn into a billion-dollar problem overnight. It's the result of decades of inaction and population changes. By the 1980s, white people were making a mass exit to the suburbs, taking tax dollars with them. Then, in 97, Jackson elected its first black mayor, and white folks continued to leave the city in droves. And so it's led to divestment. If your city was built for 200,000 people because because you had 200,000 people at the time that the pipes were laid, and now you have 40,000 less people, then, you know, it doesn't take an economist to know that that has a detrimental impact on you. Lamumba said that mayor after mayor, all black men since 1997, all of them have asked the state for help in tackling the water issue. The answer has been a consistent no. The state sees this as the city's problem to solve. I think that we wouldn't be doing this conversation justice and we'd be less than honest if we didn't say that race plays a major factor. When did that divestment take place? That divestment took place in 96, 97, right? When we ended up with our first black mayor. That divestment took place when the leadership started to to resemble the community itself. So without the funds to overhaul the system, the city has been able to make some fixes here and there. But these are just Band-Aids. When a major storm comes through, the Band-Aids don't stick. So what happened since then? You know, the prime mover needs to be the city itself. It's the city of Jackson. Adding insult to injury, when the Mississippi Free Press asked Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman if the time had come for the state to step in and help its capital city, he responded that, The last white Jackson mayor had done repair work. So we asked, why haven't other mayors? What's your plan to do that? And how much money is it going to take? And how are you going to pay for it? It's not a state. The city is the city of Jackson. It elects its mayor and it elects uh, its city councilman. And those people need to come up with a plan. But this is the capital city. You'd imagine this would be an all-hands-on-deck situation. The amount of money that you're providing to the state, the sheer number of the people being impacted. What do they say when you point out all of the issues and how much it'll cost and the dire needs? What is the response? Often it, it feels like they're tone deaf, that they, they don't hear what we're saying. And, and I do think that if, once again, we're being honest, uh, it's, it's a matter of race, right? Uh, it's a matter of casting judgment, you know, believing that leadership that looks like us is insufficient to address the needs that we have, right? You know, no leadership can manage 
how it supports its community without the funding and the resources that it needs. And so what we see are actually communities going through cycles of humiliation, poor performing schools, failing infrastructure, high crime, high poverty, all of these things. And so I think that we need to be able to turn the page to a different model, a model that reflects the inherent dignity in every person. We reached out to the lieutenant governor for an interview, but we didn't get a response. The governor also declined to comment. You know, obviously we're in the midst of, of this crisis in Jackson. There's still folks here without proper access to, to clean, fresh water, right? And regardless of the complicated nature of the racism and the infrastructures and all the systemic structural stuff, you know, you are the mayor of Jackson. How do you argue against that to say, hey, this is still your city? Mm-hmm. Like, you got to do something. Oh, yeah. Like, how do you respond to that? Well, I, I think it's it's all in, in you know, uh, my community knowing that I'm going to do everything that I can to fight with them, fight for them, you know, uh, to... to uh, not only try to see what, what creative things we can do uh, to produce the money ourselves, uh, leverage money, uh, but, but knock on every door, uh, communicate not only with the state and, and federal partners. Uh, and so, you know, my goal each and every day is to show progress, to show an effort uh, to, to produce everything that we can. Uh, and we've been able to do that uh, with very limited resources. Uh, but as I have said, you know, it is still not sufficient to meet that need. Now, Mayor Lumumba knows he's not getting $2 billion to fix the water system, at least not anytime soon. He's not even asking the state for that kind of money. I'm not saying that, hey, please give Jackson an all-new, shiny city and, and we'll get out your hair, right? I, I'm aware that, that, you know, the politics is the study of who gets what, when, where, and how. And so there are always challenges of resources because they're, they're not abundant enough for everyone to get what they need. But the mayor is asking for $47 million for immediate emergency repairs, what you might call another Band-Aid. We're saying that, listen, I'm talking to you about equipment at the water treatment facility. I'm not talking to you about the pipes that are over 100 years and are going to rupture and are like peanut brittle, that literally when our water treatment or our, our public works department go out to fix or repair these pipes, that they sometimes wait for a few minutes because as they make a repair a few yards away from where they made the repair, it's not uncustomary or uncommon uh, for them to see a rupture happen right before their eyes and then have to run and, and make that repair. He's also asking the state to support raising the city sales tax by 1% to help it secure other long-term funding. Are you optimistic about the future in terms of rectifying that kind of racial and infrastructure dynamic? You know, coming out of an organizer background, there's an inherent optimism that exists in you. You you wouldn't be fighting and struggling and, and trying to find solutions if deep down inside you didn't think that there was opportunity for growth, there was opportunity for things to change. An opportunity for things to change. Cassandra Welchin, the Jackson resident we heard from earlier, agrees that's what this water crisis could be. This is an organizing moment just like it was a Black Lives Matter moment this summer with the uh, racial unrest and the protests that happened there. There was an organizing moment then to say Black Lives Matter, Black Bodies Matter. And it's the same thing when it comes to just meeting the basic needs. That organizing work that happened across the country, that happened in Mississippi. She's talking about the organizing effort last year when lots of different folks came together to get that offensive state flag taken down and forever changed. 
Cassandra wants that same kind of full-on organizing work around Jackson's water. Businesses came together and they formed a partnership. The athletic departments and associations came together to say, if we don't take down that flag, our players would not be playing. And we know that Mississippi depend on those resources, right? Just like Frederick Douglass says, you know, power just don't give up. You got to put a demand on that thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what happened during, during the protests and the taking down of the flag. That same thing needs to happen. We've had companies come in to give us water, right? Um, we need those companies to stand with us. We need those Walmarts that benefit from our communities, um, the SAMs that benefit from the communities. We need them to come together and to say enough is enough to say we value your life and this is how. So this is an organizing moment um, and we're going to put a demand on that power. We're going to say our black bodies matter. Our black households matter. Water is essential to living and we don't have to ask permission for water. It is just our God-given right to have it. That was pretty interesting, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed that. It sure touched my heart to listen to uh, people who couldn't get decent water. You agree, Chris? Uh, you are absolutely right, Rob. I mean, you told me about the you told me about the uh, article. I didn't get a chance to listen to it before, but struck right to the core of the, of the issue, buddy. Absolutely. Well, we, it's time for us to go. We'll be back next week. We have the a lady named Karen Taylor Robson who's running for governor of Arizona. She'll be on talking about water. And hope you join us. And the most important thing that we all want you to do is please help keep our planet Planet blue. blue. All right. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you later. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM.